Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. When the Avanti Virtual Private Network software vulnerability came to light in January, the Department of the Navy had an answer. It expanded its virtual desktop interface to 110,000 users from 25,000, all that in less than a week, moving them off the risky VPN product. For how it all went, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the Navy Department's Chief Information Officer, Jane Rathbun. For us, VDI was always part of our of our formula for how we're going to deliver capability to our on-prem and our remote workers. And so this was somewhat of a forcing function for us, uh, but really always, again, planned to move away from VPN dependency uh, and give more flexibility to our workforce uh, using these, we call it a Nautilus virtual desktop, because of its great flexibilities. Imagine because you had uh, several thousand, tens of thousands of people using it, you had good confidence that, okay, when you had to say, let's switch it and turn it on, you felt like there was already good history of, okay, this works for a small number of people. What was, was there any moments where you said, oh no, will this work for a larger number of people? We always wondered what scaling would look like and whether or not there would be a stress uh, to the infrastructure in doing that. And got to say, we didn't miss a beat. And I, again, really proud of the team for being able to rally. And really, the other thing it did for us, it allowed us to strategically communicate, hey, remote workers, you have other options. Here they are. And people have just been amazed at how the capability works and how quick it is and that they really have not missed a beat. If folks are going, okay, I've heard of virtual desktop, but what's the difference between that and a VPN? VPN, you got to log on. Virtual desktop, you have to log on. VPN, you have to go through a, a process, two-factor, multi-factor, right, I'm right. sure. So, But what's the difference for the end user? The end user with a VPN is using their government-furnished equipment to access with VDI. They can really remote access in from their home computer. The beauty of the virtual desktop is it is virtual. It is protected, and uh, we have put protections in place for security purposes, so you can't download things on your personal device to do work, but you've got all the things that you would have available to you on your on your VPN connection, you will have available to you on the a virtual desktop to include answering emails, writing documents, sharing documents with your colleagues, all of that works. Is your goal to get rid of all VPNs or is this for a certain sect of the Navy that you're saying, let's use VDI? Our two goals are optimal customer service and customer experience and operational resiliency. And so for me, operational resiliency is cybersecurity and redundant paths uh, so that you can be productive 24-7, 365 from anywhere in the world. And so our plan has always been to offer, as we learned about the capability when we moved to our flank speed platform, that we saw this as a good tool to meet our workforce needs where our workforce is. Uh, and so, yes, it was always a plan for it to be part of our formula. Whether or not we abandon VPN completely is to be determined. Uh, and there are um, some limitations, not from the VDI perspective capability, but we have some applications, both ones we own and ones that we access through the, the DOD that are configured in a way that don't work well with the virtual desktop uh, environment and so changes would have to be made to be able to fully adopt uh, alternative paths away from VPNs. And we're moving to zero trust and so everything that we're doing we don't 
have to be focused on the perimeter anymore. We can be focused on really at the device person data level and all of the capabilities that we're bringing to bear are zero trust aligned. I know it sounds to me like VDI has worked well for this uh, expansion and, and there's maybe some other expansion coming. Let's shift over to cybersecurity, you brought up zero trust. I wanna start with the risk management framework. One of the comments you made was, we wanna move away from the RMF like a lot of folks have. What progress are you making? How are you moving away? What Cyber readiness look like? Let's touch upon all those. Sure. Uh, cyber ready is what we call our future state initiative that is earning the right to operate every day. You know, the RMF process is very compliance driven, lots of checklists, and what it gives you is a point in time uh, approval that your, your system is good from a cybersecurity perspective. The day after, you don't know what the uh, state of your system is because you're, if you're not doing the things that we want to see in cyber ready, like continuous monitoring, like adversarial threat assessment, like active risk management, and that the data is visible to our cyber C2 operators, then we're not cyber ready. Those are the kind of the key components of where we're headed with cyber ready. We see cyber ready evolving away from, again, the checklist mentality, the compliance mentality to processes that are established at the enclave or platform layer level, understanding that not every platform needs the same types of cybersecurity tooling and, and, and approach, um, but we want to make sure that uh, in our cyber ready that from design all the way to operate uh, and, and sustain, uh, that we have built cyber capabilities, cybersecurity capabilities in every phase of that. With any cybersecurity or really any IT change that you push, there's a big culture change. You try to get people to, to institutionalize, hey, we're no longer doing X and we're going to do Y instead. What have you done over the last six months, a year or so from the CIO's perspective? Because I know you were principal deputy and then and you moved up to the, the full CIO role to change that culture, to, to institutionalize the cyber ready. Our approach has been, um, we're not going to dictate process up front. We're going to work with our with our enclaves, our mission uh, delivers and design cyber ready processes with those tenants, continuous monitoring, bringing the right telemetry, uh, adversarial th threat assessment, based on their enclave, and so we did a carrot and stick uh, approach, and that is you come and be a pilot in the cyber-ready uh, work at, that you will not have to do another ATO because what we expect is by the time we evolve with you in your journey, we have established that you have a cyber-ready process, and now you can just operate that way. I'm glad you brought up the pilots. I know you mentioned them at the FCA West, uh, the PEO IWS, and the NAV Air. I think we're two of them. What do the pilots look like? Walk me through what they're doing, and then how do you take what you've learned from them and then start to apply it more broadly? Imagine you want to expand cyber ready to to all the areas of, of the Navy. Yeah, Navy and Marine Corps. So the Navy and Marine Corps are active partners in our journey here. And uh, some folks have just come to us said, we want to be a cyber ready pilot. We're working with them. Some programs that are working on are proving out certain pieces of the puzzle, like what does continuous monitoring look like? Or how do we apply adversarial threat assessment? We have a team that's working on a risk management model. Tim, We call it TIMRA. That is a key piece of this. And that's actually already done. And people are beginning to adopt that even programs that are not in the cyber-ready pilots. But these cyber-ready pilots are helping us evolve to this state where we believe the answer, again, is going to be in the future at a system command, by an enclave. So if I'm nav air, air platforms are my enclave, they're going to tell us what cyber-ready the process looks like. We're going to evaluate that process along with our cyber C2 leadership and say, yep, you are cyber-ready. Anything you run through this meets the intent 
you'll get an authority to operate. And then if you, we're going to do spot checking, we're going to do, we're going to still do all the same things we do today. But as long as you are continuously running this process and being running a cyber currency, cyber ready approach, then you can move things through. Are the couple pilots doing the same thing, or they're testing different parts of this concept of cyber-ready? As you said, Navair has yeah. platforms. PEO, IWS may have more applications. Or yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we asked Navair is to think about it holistically, what, what it would look like to give Navair a cyber-ready designation. So you build your whole process. Again, these are the things we need to see that you're producing the telemetry that the, the cyber operators need, that you can assess threat, that you can give us a risk. I'm going to say risk score, but that's not really what we're after. We're, at, we're building a set of criteria that says this, you know, that, that allows us to feel good about the level of risk you're accepting in your systems. And so they're looking end-to-end whole process. In PEOIWS, we've got three programs in various stages of the life cycle. One's a new start. One is doing a modernization, and one is just on their three-year cycle for ATO, and they're looking at how they can incorporate some of these cyber-ready approaches, getting continuous monitoring in there, producing the telemetry, and then evolving and learning, and then ultimately what we'll be doing for IWS, because combat weapon system is an enclave unto itself, they will go through the same approach that NavAir is going for their enclave and and get a cyber-ready designation for, for their process. Jane Rathbun, Chief Information Officer for the Navy Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences 
And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. 
and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, Chief People Officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title, Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year 
and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.